You're listening to The Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, Alan, we got a guest today from across the pond. So who are we talking to today? Yeah. Anna Vukovic with the University of Nottingham. Uh, she is in the Computational Electromagnetics Group, and they have developed some really interesting software and technology over the last couple of years so that we can now really simulate aircraft uh, installations, even on wind turbines. We can do some of the complex geometries we couldn't do before because we didn't have the techniques. So Anna and her group over there have developed these techniques and uh, it's really gonna open a, a whole number of doors in aerospace. And obviously as we're all coming out of COVID, uh, one of the things that's really trying to save costs and move programs forward, well, this is one way to do it. Yeah, so it was an interesting conversation. Obviously I, I'm not an engineer, so this, me being the outsider, it, it still boils down and it makes a, a lot of sense. So obviously when you're trying to engineer new parts for an aircraft, a, it's incredibly expensive. It takes incredibly expensive people to do so. It takes a lot of time. And when you're ready to test these systems together, so not just like an antenna, but the whole radome with antenna inside and diverter strips on the outside of this whole complex thing, currently you guys have to actually build it. And then in <laughs> most cases, it, yeah. actually put it on the plane just to test it to maybe see if, if there's an effect at all or if there's like an incremental effect, which seems like a terrible yeah, waste of time or- and money. And so it is. Group can do this on a computer modeling or on computer modeling. Yeah. And just be done with it, which sounds like, it, I mean, it just makes a ton of sense. It makes a lot more sense. You're going to get better products at the end of the day and less expensive products. Uh, in, in the computational world, we've been trying to get here for since the 1970s, mid 1970s. So it's been a long haul. And obviously, the computational power we have now helps because we're we're doing a lot of computations but a lot of this is trying to cut down the computations and then the techniques that have been developed at the university of nottingham reduce the amount of computational time it takes to do some of these complex problems so not only do we have the horsepower now but we're also smarter about the way we use the horsepower which cuts down on cost yeah and so she they have more capabilities than so in the industry comsol is the software that you can have yeah. a computer at your desktop, you know, work for a company mm-hmm. and do some of this modeling on smaller scale, yeah. like individual parts. You can have someone in your company do that. But if you really have complex mm-hmm. parts where you're not just testing an antenna in isolation, you're testing the right. whole radome, this whole system together, that pretty much goes beyond the capabilities of this otherwise very effective and, you know, popular ComSol software. Is that right? Yeah, ComSol is a very useful tool and a, and a lot of industry uses it now. The wind turbine industry uses it a lot for lightning protection things. The aircraft industry uses it a lot for uh, lightning and uh, electromagnetic compatibility issues. Uh, the The issue really gets down to is to trying to accurately simulate complex shapes and on larger aircraft or larger ar- objects. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a ship in the sea. Those are huge, complex objects uh, with a lot of fine detail in them that, that matters. And so in order to simulate that accurately, either you have to get it, decrease your resolution or you got to increase your horsepower and computing power to, to actually mimic that and to mock it up computationally. Well, the way that Nottingham does it, it's using the best of both worlds. 
it's uh, using sort of simpler techniques where they can, but and the fine details are still there in the model, which is really hard to you know conceptually think about. But those little fine details, as we get antennas and we start working at higher and higher and higher frequencies, computationally becomes more and more computationally intensive. So the, 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 the higher the frequency, the smaller the details have to be. It just gets to be this sort of, uh, uh, it just starts to wrap up into this huge ball of goo of computational problems they've gotten rid of a lot of that uh, yeah it reminds me so, of uh, the way she was describing it. it reminds me of video compression so like yeah. for example if you're watching us right now most of my frame is not changing right my camera is recording at 30 frames per second but most frames all this peripheral information is constant so in video compression it's not recapturing those pixels it's reusing them from frame to frame when they don't change and so right. that's sort of, it's not certainly not a perfect analogy, but it sounds sort of like that's what her, their it uh, is. hybrid meshing is where they use yeah. cubes where they can, because they're easier mm -hmm. and they use the tetrahedral mm -hmm. where they can't, which is harder. Same thing. Like the camera's compressing this video when I move around and it's not when, right. it, when I'm not. So it just makes it a lot simpler and reduces the, reduces the amount of frames and file sizes, or maybe not amount of frames, but the file size in general. So, right. So even as we get, as the pictures get more and more detail in the video sense, they actually get smaller and smaller files, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. The same things happen in electromagnetics and computational electromagnetics. We're getting smarter about the way we do it, so the computers get much smaller, and the amount of time it takes is a lot less, and yet the resolution has gone way, way up. It's incredible. It really is. Yeah. So without further ado, we're going to jump into our, our pretty awesome conversation with Anna Vukovic. So Anna, uh, one of the major difficulties, uh, you know, in testing RF and, uh, and EMI are, I, I guess, creating new parts just for that purpose, right? There's a really big expense in having to create a radome just to throw it on an airplane to then test it. So uh, with some of your computer modeling, how are you tackling that problem? Geometry creation is the first step in um, sort of doing electromagnetic simulation. Um, we have different uh, options for geometry creation, we can either uh, read in clean cut files, or we can create our own geometry file. Um, now, cut files are historically made for mechanical engineers, and they uh, have tiny microscopic gaps between surfaces. Now, they're not an issue for mechanical engineer, but for um, electromagnetic simulations, tiny gaps can be catastrophic. Uh, they can distort the field uh, and, uh, and give us inaccurate simulations. So, it is very important to um, get rid of these um, small gaps. So we call this CAD dirty CAD, and the process of eliminating gaps is cleaning the CAD. So um, our, our software can read uh, different uh, CAD files, such as IGIS, for example, um, but does not do repair. So we can locate the errors, but we don't repair. We can alternatively uh, send the customer report where the errors are for repair, or we can generate our own in-house geometry. Gotcha. So yeah, I mean, you guys have some pretty incredible capabilities, um, but I'd like to, to back up a little bit. So, you know, when we're talking about, again, like testing some of these, these expensive to create models, like, all right, we're trying to design something new for an aircraft or new for a wind turbine or whatever the, the part might be. Um, what are, what's the, I mean, and Alan, you feel free to jump in here as well. I mean, how, how does this process go in the engineering world? I mean, we go from 
concept, like, hey, here's an idea that we have that we think might work. Um, then what is it typically, is it typically a, a physical part or, because I know, Anna, that's where you come in, where you can say, hey, we don't need to do this physically. We can just do this on our computer simulation and save you a whole lot of time and trouble. So, Alan, is that kind of the process with aerospace engineering, at least? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of aerospace engineering, particularly in electromagnetics, is trial and error. And in, in lightning protection, it really is trial and error. So there's a lot of work done and parts built just to try out ideas that we can't or couldn't do until recently computationally. So we, we end up spending a bunch of money and time coming up with concepts that we then ship to some laboratory somewhere in the world to spend tens of thousands of dollars to do a test that lasts less than a second. So we can, so there's like a six month process between idea and test. And that's a very expensive loop for these aerospace companies because you just are delaying the, the outcome of trying to get an airplane or a wind turbine or anything else out into production. And that's where the, some of these new computational tools really come in is that we just shorten that cycle time down and lessen the burden of cost so that we can be more efficient. And that's where Anna's computational technology really comes into play. So Anna, you can basically save these companies from creating a, a physical model and you can do this in-house in your in your computer simulation? Yes. So aerospace uh, industry is a typical example of large-scale electromagnetic problems. And this is the angle we are sort of looking into. Um, designing individual components is all right, and it's usually done comp using computational softwares. However, if you have a large-scale problem, um, and uh, which is difficult to represent in electromagnetic um, uh, way in, in terms of geometry, simulation, meshing, then you tend to do more experiments than simulations. However, if you had the capability to do electromagnetic simulations on large-scale problems, that has potential to reduce the cost significantly because mm -hmm. it can reduce that sort of uh, number of trial and errors. Uh, and it can uh, enable you to do parameter sweep for optimization and looking into, let's say, how field, how currents behave and so on. So gotcha. yes, computational modeling does, uh, it does not eliminate experimental um, um, setup and laboratory, but it can reduce the cost. And of so, course, how much it reduces the cost, it depends on the company, on the internal processes and their model. Gotcha. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Basically, you can save companies just a lot of a lot of that trial and error, not completely eliminated, but instead of having to make X amount of real parts and really fit them and then test them, you can just really shorten that cycle, running them through your models and give them maybe a better idea of where they like, hey, this this idea seems like it's viable, whereas these other two prototypes, maybe not. So maybe put your, you know, if you're going to build a real part, maybe go with this one here. Is that sort of? Yes. And for example, I'll give you an example. Um, our customer had um, a wing damaged in lightning um, and they obviously looked into repair uh, and they used uh, the software to help them analyze current distribution on the wing. What they got is something was something that really they didn't expect, but it helped them consequently to repair the wing. So they managed to save a whole wing so to, instead of making a new one. So potentially the, the saving is huge. The saving can be huge. And so with that wing, what did you, what was your process like? So they said, hey, Anna, we have this problem. Um, what was that back and forth like? 
So it, it is just sort of enabling them to read. So uh, uh, if you if you imagine um, a wing, airplane wing is made of uh, many thin layers of carbon fiber composite. Uh, so it's sort of, uh, we enable them to read into all these thin layers um, and you have potentially very large structures. So you have thin layer on a huge structure. So um, the capability of this thin layer modeling enable them to look into um, the current distribution and then hence um, uh, how to repair, what sort of patch to put to repair and where to put that patch more, more importantly. Gotcha. And so this comes back to like your modeling. So in that situation, do they have to submit a, like a CAD drawing to you of their wing and include the damage or, or what do they need to do to get the right, um, you know, the right design drawing into your model to make it work? So I think in that uh, example, they had their own CAD design, but they didn't have the capability of simulating these um, multiple thin layers. Um, so. It, it is, in a sense, a complex structure because it has many thin layers of different properties on a large scale. Uh, so uh, that comes into sort of complexity reduction of the model. How do we deal uh, with that sort of complexity? How do we deal with large scale features and small scale features in, in, one, uh, in one model? That problem, uh, such a huge problem. Yeah, yeah because it, on these newer aerospace vehicles, particularly the ones that are made out of carbon fiber, the electrical complexities are immense because if you th if you think about it you got a, a, a wing scan you have spars you have ribs you have reinforcements a lot of times they're not sometimes they're glued together sometimes there's fasteners holding them together so electrically it's this really complex system where currents will flow not necessarily where intuitively you'd think they would flow uh, because the joint resistances and things like that play into current flow. So if you're looking at a mechanically looking at a wing, it's pretty easy to understand. You can see where the loads are going. You can see how the composite parts are designed. But electrically, it's a complete different animal. You can't really visualize it like you can on a, on a metal wing because uh, we just have so much data on it, on these carbon fiber wings. And because the complexities are put into each of the parts and because the geometries are so unique, it's very hard to predict where currents are going. Yeah. So, Alan, what is all kind of throws back to you? What's the typical time frame on something like this? Like you're designing a new part. Obviously, the faster you can move, especially with big companies where there is a lot of meetings and lots of bureaucracy and lots of checks, you know, obviously for, for safety reasons and all that stuff. But What's the typical time frame and, and what does the potential cost savings look like? Like as a company, if it's X amount of weeks, what would you guys love to like get it down to? Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you two good examples of let's just talk about carbon fiber wings for a minute. Uh, I'll, I'll actually give you three good examples of how carbon fiber wings have really held up aircraft programs. So first is the Lear 85, which was a Learjet Bombardier project uh, that eventually got canceled because it just ran out of time and money. Because the, making a carbon fiber wing, one, structurally is difficult, but two, electrically is extremely difficult, particularly for lightning because everything wants to spark. And so you end up doing, you end up making test samples and hundreds of test samples. You're doing all these tests. Some work, some don't. Uh, the MRJ or the space jet Mitsubishi, which they just uh, mothballed recently, had that same sort of issue. And then the, the A220, which did get certified, which was originally the Bombardier C-Series, and now is the Airbus A220, has a carbon fiber wing. And they did all kinds of computational things to shorten the cycle time. And you can't 
and, and the Airbus and the Bombardier C-Series was living off of some of the Learjet 85 testing that we had done. But you have to compress those schedules because right now, to, to, from a, a clean sheet design to certification on a new airplane, it's somewhere between 5, 10, some of these airplanes are 15, 13, 14, 15 years long. You can't do that anymore. You just don't have the wherewithal to do that. You have to, and part of that is driven by the lightning protection and the electromagnetics, uh, particularly on on military aircraft. You can't do that anymore. You can't you can't keep spending billions of dollars on these things. You have to shorten the cycle time so we can get products out. So, and the the, the reason why we're not talking about computational uh, electromagnetics today is because there really hasn't been a, real, a lot of really great tools particularly that can model the complexities that are involved in some of these designs today. Uh, basic, and what Anna's going, to talk, Anna's going to talk about is some of the basic ways we have done electromagnetic modeling, which is by via cubes. And using a cube model is very simple computationally. The problem is, is that we don't build things like cube shapes. Uh, and things are aerodynamic. They're curved. And what Anna's team has done has been able to take that curvature of an existing part and actually model it instead of trying to convert a, a nice smooth aerodynamic shape into a bunch of cubes. Totally different. And also their software allows them to do very small details, which the cubes just can't really do. So the better you get so much better resolution out of the computational model, it's finally getting and the University of Nottingham's done a tremendous job of this. We've finally gotten from haven't you create a part, go test it in a lab, and even when we test it, we don't know a lot about what has happened besides just looking at the out outcome. We don't necessarily understand what where the currents are flowing, that kind of thing. Now we have both. Now we can actually create a computational model that's representative, figure out where the currents are flowing, and determine the likely outcome. Those are huge costs and time savers, huge costs and time savers. So your colleagues, Trevor Benson and Phil Sewell and yourself, uh, you guys have a, a unique model where you're combining tetrahedral and also the cubic uh, meshing. Is that right? That, that's correct. So our group is well known for transmission line modeling method uh, that is initially developed on cubic mesh. Um, and recently, in the last maybe 10 years, um, we started working on um, developing the same methodology on tetrahedral mesh. Um, in fact, Phil Sewell is, is, is the, the expert and, and the person who is really into meshing and, and sort of computational aspects of this. Mm -hmm. um, now, in order to um, discretize real problems, as Alan said, we need tetrahedral mesh. Now, tetrahedral mesh is not the ideal mesh. So if you want to mesh everything using tetrahedra, um, you end up uh, spending lots of time meshing it and then lots of time processing it because uh, it's a very sort of um, computationally demanding mesh. On the other hand, cubic mesh is simple to implement, simple to mesh, but introduces uh, staircasing errors. So no matter how small cubes you use to mesh curved boundaries, you still end up with noise. Uh, staircasing noise. So what, what our unique capability is, is to combine two meshes, to combine cubic mesh where it's suitable for cubic mesh and tetrahedral mesh where we have curved and complex regions and, and, and fine details that need really sort of capturing uh, accurately. 
So that's what we call that mesh hybrid mesh, and this is the really unique capability uh, of the whole in the in this process. Um, um, having said that, um, the matching that we developed is not unique. Uh, Shushek, um, Jonathan Shushek from America is um, one of the first people who pioneered tetrahedral Deloni mesh. Uh, however, we implemented his approach and our aspect, our angle is how it's actually uh, programmed. So the programming aspect of that mesh is what is unique. Uh, so the, actually the capability is what yeah. is unique. Right. Gotcha. And, and so, like you said, this is computationally very demanding. Um, and so like the typical software out there that's, that's in use is ComSol, right? But that has some limitations and necessarily, or maybe isn't necessarily capable of doing a lot of the stuff that you guys are doing. So ComSol is very popular. I don't want to say anything bad about ComSol. We, so people like ComSol. It's very um, user-friendly. Um, However, we have customers who come to us and, and demand, sort of, to, to not demand, but ask whether we could do larger, yeah, demand <laughs> solutions from us. Well, yeah, all softwares tend to have a limitation. Yes, um, console is good, but perhaps for sort of isolated components, it's a really good tool to do isolated components. However, if once you want to do components in a context or components in a large scale, this is maybe where we come into. By context, you mean not just testing an antenna or something just by itself, but also like the fully like integrated with the whole system. So the antenna in the radome on the plane potentially. Is that right? Yes. So antenna, isolated antenna is not a problem, not a problem anymore. Lots of softwares can do it. Antenna in a radome is already a problem problem because at the moment people do it antenna separately then save the fields that antenna generates and then put radon into that field so it's uncoupled analysis but they have not done fully coupled analysis accurately um, and then let's go one step further antenna and a radon with button strips with diverters another level of complexity so um, yes yeah, so antenna in a context device in a context and that probably poses more problems, right? Because if you're just testing, testing each individual component, you don't really know how they interact with each other, right? Is that, is that right, Alan? Yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't work together. You need to see the actual, like an antenna installed on an aircraft. It does very little good to figure what the pattern of an antenna is. We all, especially a lot of aircraft antennas are pretty simple, but the problem is once you install it on the aircraft, all the fields start bouncing around and the pattern starts to change dramatically in some cases. So it's very hard to predict that. I know we had a lot of problems when I worked at Beach Aircraft with just that particular problem. But secondarily, as we, on the, in the antenna world, we're going up in frequency. So we've gone from sort of VHF, 100 megahertz kind of things, to now KA band satellite communication, which is 30 gigahertz. So things have gotten smaller, and it's very hard to measure to, to computationally represent smaller articles on big aircraft accurately. And that's where the software that Nottingham has developed comes into play. Small objects on bigger platforms. Anna, can you talk about how you take that small object and integrate it onto a bigger aircraft? Like, how does that mesh out? Like, if I had uh, an antenna on a wing, for example, how do you mesh that out where that you can get a good representation of how that antenna is going to perform? So, antenna in a wing, that's a good example. Um, so, obviously, 
there would, that will be a large problem. So if we capture wing is how many Alan meters, you know, three, four meters, maybe more. Antenna is quite small. Um, we looked at an example of three gigahertz, antenna operating at three gigahertz. Um, so let's just three gigahertz uh, in terms of wavelength, let's say that's the wavelength we want. Um, uh, wavelength of three gigahertz is around 10 centimeters. So that, that means we should mesh it with one centimeter accuracy. However, antenna is much smaller than one centimeter, has de smaller details. And again, um, CFC skin is much smaller uh, and is layered, uh, structural joint on the wing and so on. So we combine, again, we combine tetrahedral mesh for small regions and cubic mesh for large regions where we have nothing, um, nothing of interest, uniform region. Um, and uh, we end up with that hybrid grid. Um, any realistic problem um, will introduce very, very small cells. Um, uh, in context of time, time domain method, small cells mean small time step. Right. And if time step is small, uh, then that means longer, much, much longer simulation is required. But any realistic problem will probably cause you to have zero time step, so small that you can also say it's zero. So this is where um, we made a significant breakthrough. We, um, in our uh, solver, when we are solving, we combine all these small cells that are produced by the mesher into a bigger cluster. And we process these clusters uh, separately as bigger entities. Uh, that enables us to uh, raise the time step by order of magnitude. So that is significant saving wow. for our computer. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it, it, if you think about it, Dan, think about some of the problems we've been involved with, like with our strike tape product. Like on wind turbines, some of these wind turbine blades are 100 meter long blades, and yet the lightning protection on some of these things are little receptors, maybe three centimeters diameter, or our, put our strike tape product on, which is also pretty small electrically in this bigger, huge model. The only way you're going to do that is do what the Nottingham group has done, which is try to break that problem down a little bit and then deal with the details separately from the larger object so that computationally you can even do it. Because Nottingham, and Anna, you can describe what is the computational power at Nottingham to do some of these problems? How big is the set of computers? All our, pro all our programs are parallel. So we use parallel computing. And we use a moderate size cluster of 10 nodes, 320 RAM. Uh, all nodes are infinibut connected, which means it's fast communication between nodes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is a moderate size cluster. Uh, but some of our uh, um, sort of customers have much, much bigger clusters to throw a computational model at. So when you say how, what physical size are we talking about? Because a lot of times when in previous not that many years ago, we were talking about using sort of Cray supercomputers to do some of these computational things, Now, which took up rooms. Uh, and now we're talking about computers that sit in a closet. Is that the kind of size we're talking about? No, our computer sits in a closet of one and a half by one and a half meter. Um, it's not wow. very tall. It's maybe half a meter tall. Um, but it needs lots of, um, it needs a, um, uh, it, it gets really hot, so it needs and cold air. Yeah, is it is it water water cooled or air cooled? Just out of curiosity. Air cooled. I think the the water cool or not. It's not necessarily water, but well, sometimes it's water. But I find it fascinating the uh, liquid cooled computers. I mean, sometimes they have like this 
it's not a water, but it's a liquid, like almost it's just bathed in it. I just think it's really fascinating just the way they, they get, they handle some of this processing power. Um, so that's how you increase the speed. Yeah. It's cool. It, keep it cool. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your team. So obviously this is, this sounds just like a tremendous amount of work to get where you got, you all have gotten. Um, how do you and Trevor and Phil interact? What are the different skill sets that you have? I mean, I'm sure you all have your unique role in this, in this system. So yes, so Phil is um, our expert person for meshing and solving for computational aspects of the method. Uh, Trevor um, is um, really for terahertz applications, so for high frequency applications. So mm -hmm. he's looking into that area. And I'm sort of looking more at microwave and electromagnetic compatibility uh, applications. Um, we have a range of PhD students who look at different aspects. Um, uh, so at the moment we have um, a PhD student, Kaichi Yan, who is looking at multi-physics, uh, coupling, electromagnetic coupling with thermal uh, model. So we have electromagnetic thermal, um, for example, application in lightning applications. Um, mm. So uh, in the past we had a student who looked at uh, coupling between wires, so we are capable to develop different type of um, wiring structures, uh, classical wires and coaxial, but also um, um, cable bundles um, and look at the wow. coupling um, okay. into those. But really, um, so the wire application range is uh, ranging between um, low frequency electromagnetic compatibility to terahertz region. And at the moment we are looking at um, uh, some, uh, say, uh, spiral antennas um, as part of DARPA project. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. So where, where are a lot of your customers from there? Are they from, because Nottingham's in the United Kingdom, if I didn't say that already, but uh, where are your, are they tend to be from the European countries surrounding the UK, or is it from the United States, or so Japan? We collaborate, we collaborate with, um, so predominantly with the UK customers, yeah. Um, aerospace companies, um, and telecommunications companies. And so why, obviously we talked about ComSol a little bit, but you know, like your computer node, your cluster, you said is pretty significant. Some companies have this, some, some don't. Uh, I guess what's the advantage? Cause you know, some of these airspace companies have tremendous financial resources, but yet it seems like it's often easier for them to just go to you and outsource this, you know, get you guys as a consultant or contractor to do some of their computational work. Uh, why is it so difficult for them to do some of this stuff in-house? So I think the main difficulty is um, um, really CAD, uh, CAD file, the clean CAD. So many companies spend lots of time and effort cleaning that CAD. Uh, so our ways, um, we can reproduce it. So we can reproduce the CAD and, and save there. Uh, the other thing is uh, meshing. So meshing capability to, to create that sort of efficient mesh. Um, and as you say, big companies already have parallel computing. So once they have geometry and mesh, and so they, they can easily just run the whole problem on their large cluster. And this is, in fact, that was the scenario with our company. Um, they just created everything and then ran the problem on their cluster because it was so big. Uh, our cluster was small for that problem. But it was possible to, to model. Gotcha. So if you're, you know, say I was a new aerospace company and I, I want to recruit you to, you know, test a radome that we're manufacturing. 
What does the process look like? What's the first thing that you need from me to get that process going? So the first thing is um, uh, the CAD file, the geometry file, uh, that you, if you can generate, uh, if it's clean, we can read it and we can then mesh it and simulate. That's and so what is, can you, can you go into a little bit about clean versus not clean? So cleaning is uh, identifying where the tiny gaps are and then manually moving the dots in the file so they exactly overlap. So all our uh, files, all our, um, all our uh, CAD files are working with mathematical precision. So it has to be really uh, sort of exact. So all the surfaces have to be unique. So if, if two bodies share a surface, that surface is unique to both bodies. There isn't a gap between them. So, um, so that is process of cleaning the CAD. Alternatively, uh, we can um, create our own uh, geometry. So knowing all the dimensions and how the um, structure looks, we can use our own ge uh, geometry generator to recreate the CAD file. Gotcha. So the alternatives, yeah. Okay. But we do, not, we do not offer services of cleaning the CAD. We can, we can locate the errors, uh, but we don't, we don't clean the CAD. There are specialized companies who actually do that business uh, yeah. and develop software for uh, cleaning the CAD. Yeah. And Dan, you know, one of the things uh, talking about cleaning the CAD uh, comes up is, remember that there's a lot of, and we've been talking about this in the podcast for the last several weeks, which is there's a lot of these sort of smaller to mid-sized companies that are popping up that are in the electric vertical takeoff and landing, like the Uber and the, and the Lilium. And there's a number of companies like that that just don't have necessarily the time or the staff to devote to uh making sure that the antenna is working. And I, I was just looking at Lilium here again this morning, realizing it's a little electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, and, and they have roughly a half a billion dollars of, of funding. But if you look at the aircraft, there's no antennas on it. <laughs> like, like uh, it doesn't have the ability to really communicate into the airspace in which it's going to be operating in. So they're going to be doing a lot of uh, computational things to... One, they're going to have to bury the antennas in the surface of the aircraft somehow because they need the aerodynamic shapes to be right to get the performance they want. So they're going to be doing a lot of electromagnetic things going forward, but they probably don't have the staff. So they need to be reaching out to Nottingham and to Anna to do some of these things just to save them time on their program. It, that That is clear. They just don't have – you just don't need to have a dedicated personal staff to do some of these things. Not today. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's something that would just also take a lot of training. Like this isn't just like a, a recent college grad that they can grab to do this job. It sounds like it's pretty significant. And then to find someone to either, you know, come on as a consultant or to hire full time, probably an unrealistic thing for a, a, a startup. Yeah. And for a lot of startups, there's a couple of options that you can choose from. Uh, the, the, you know, the first thing that comes to a lot of companies' minds, especially the smaller, mid-sized companies, is we'll just buy Comsol, we'll half train a person to be the person that we're going to call the the comsol person they're going to do that and they're going to make mechanical drawings on the other half of the day or that never really turns all that well either they become trained enough in comsol that they find a job that they do comsol all the time or they're not very good at comsol and the results they get out of it aren't very good versus actually uh, basically subcontracting it out to someone who knows what they're doing and get you to the answer faster. That's where a lot of these small to mid-sized companies have gone because the results are better, the outcomes are faster, and the cost is less, right? 
so there's a huge benefit to to employing someone like Nottingham uh, to do these problems for you because you just don't have time if you're trying to develop an airplane to do this. Everything's ready to go. What's the turnaround time? I mean, what can I expect? Uh, you know, how does this shorten my, again, my cycle and like the part creation? It really depends on the problem. For smaller problems, um, it can take, we can get results in a day and then we can do uh, wow. parameters. Okay. It just yeah. really depends on what parameters the customer wants to look at. Uh, how much investigation is there? But for smaller problems, building geometry, meshing, and simulating is is not an you know not an issue. For for much larger um, geometries, um, obviously we need to accurately represent geometry. Uh, and even uh, if if so, depend depends on uh, what the part, uh, the customer wants. If it's about understanding of performance, we may get rid of fine details. Look at the overall structure and then uh, later add more and more details to look at the overall effect. So, yeah, so simulation time can be from half an hour, an hour, two days, a couple of days, depending on the size of the problem. It really, it's difficult to say um, how much. Yeah, but even then it sounds like, I mean, this is, this is days versus, Alan, what's What's it take? Yeah, months. Easily, easily months. Easily months. I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. When when we we're going to check the antenna pattern of a VHF com, which is the oldest antenna <laughs> known to aircraft, uh, that's going to run you several days to to do it. Uh, and you're going to spend a bunch of time burning fuel in an aircraft. You're actually flying the airplane to, to get the patterns out of it. You're going to involve four or five or six people to do that. Versus computationally, you can do it probably less than a day. You're going to get a better answer. You can have more accuracy in the answer, and you're going to know more about with the performance. So it's it's not even close. You really can't compare the two because computational wins. It's not it's not a competition at that point. It is computational electromagnetics is the answer for those kind of problems. So on a uh, you know it sounds like this is going to be a really attractive option for a, a lot of companies. How can they get in touch with you? How can they find you and, and your colleagues uh, and your work at, at Nottingham? Best way is by email. Uh, my email is at my full name, anna.vukovic at nottingham.ac.uk. We also have a website, George Green Institute for Electromagnetic Research at Nottingham University, and my contact details are there as well. Okay. And obviously, we'll put all those, uh, her contact and the, the email links and all that stuff in the, the show notes in the description. So... Um, be really easy. You can just click through. So if you're listening in uh, iTunes or Spotify, just click the details, the show notes, and you'll find uh, links to get in touch with with Anna. So yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a fascinating technology you guys have developed and it sounds like it really solves a lot of problems for, for bigger companies where they can just get some of these answers quickly. And I'm sure a lot more cost effectively than, like we said, building parts and going out and testing them in the field. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection.